0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everybody and welcome to New Books and Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic Studies. My name is Carlos Ruiz Martinez, and I'm a host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Sean Brennan, who is currently a professor of history at the University of Scranton. Sean Brennan is the author of The Priest Who Put Europe Back Together, The Life of Father Fabian Flynn, published by Catholic University of America Press in 2018. In this biography, Dr. Brennan explores pivotal events in the 20th century and 20th century history, such as World War II, the Nuremberg Trials, and Eastern European Revolutions through the perspective of Father Fabian Flynn and his work, an American-born passionist priest. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So before we um, dive into the book, I am interested to know about your uh, sort of academic formation and and background. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Of course. Uh, Well, I knew I wanted to be a historian, that I was interested in religious history uh, from very early on from my time at Rockhurst, where I got my bachelor's. And then I went to Villanova, I got my master's there, and I knew I wanted to do something about the intersection of religion and politics in 20th century Europe, and particularly the challenges that religious institutions faced from totalitarian ideologies like fascism or communism. And my primary emphasis was in Russian history, but I had a strong secondary field in German history. And so when I got to Notre Dame to get my doctorate, and I was at Notre Dame from 2003 to 2009, and then I started Scranton in 2009, um, I want to do something that kind of merged Russian and German history and, again, religious history and political history. So my first book, my dissertation first, was about the Soviet occupation of Germany after World War II and the interaction between the East German communists, the Soviet military authorities, and the Catholic and, and uh, Protestant churches there. So that's always been a consistent theme with a lot of my historical scholarship, um, looking at, at the uh how churches and but particularly individual clergymen reacted to the tremendous challenges of the 20th century.
0: Great. And so um, turning now towards uh, some of the uh, content of the book, so uh, the focus is on uh, Father Fabian Flynn, who is a Passionist priest. Um, and for the non-specialists, right, without getting too much into the weeds, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Passionists in North America? Um, I think it might be helpful Uh, for listeners to know where uh, Father Flynn was coming from.
1: Sure, of course. The funny thing is I had no knowledge about the Passionists until about 10 years ago myself. And uh, I I stumbled on the Passionists and on Fabian Flynn almost by accident. Uh, A number of years ago in the spring of 2010, I was at a spring meeting of the American Catholic Historical Association, Princeton University. And there was a tremendous downpour, so I couldn't explore the campus, so I was looking through archival brochures, and I saw one for the Passionist Order, and it just had a really nice design. I was like, Ah, oh, Union City, New Jersey, that's not too far away from Scranton. So that's what got me to visit the archive, and eventually we brought their archive to the University of Scranton. And I noticed the Passionists had a lot of military chaplains during the Second World War, and that's how eventually I discovered Fabian Flynn, because he was one of them. Uh, but the Passionist Order, um, technically, by the way, they're a congregation, but they kind of call themselves an order, and everyone calls them an order. So you'll forgive me if I, I call them that. Um, their origins go back um, almost 300 years. Uh, they were founded in Italy, or of course there was no Italy in 1725. But um, they were founded by an Italian uh, from Piedmont uh, named Paolo Francesco Doné. In 1725, 1725, um, he was given permission by Pope Benedict the Thirteenth. He and his brother found a, a congregation. He and his brother didn't become priests until 1727. It was known as the Congregation of the Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ. Or after 1853, it's also called the Order of Saint Paul of the Cross, because Paulo Donet was eventually made a saint, Saint Paul of the Cross, and so the order. It's kind of got named after him. Uh, it, Danae wanted a priest to take three traditional vows of poverty, obedience, and chastity. Let's just say poverty, especially obedience, sometimes was an issue for Father Flynn. Um, and also a fourth one, which was a devotion to the passion of the divine Savior. And the passionists were kind of a mix between a contemplative order and a dynamic order. So they weren't a completely monastic order, like say the Trappists, uh, but they weren't a completely dynamic order like the Jesuits or the Augustinians or, or perhaps the Dominicans. They were a bit of a mix between the two. Um, but the order was based around fairly strict obedience. Uh, they close to the community. Passionists weren't really supposed to go off and be doing things on their own. They were all supposed to live together and work together as it's part of an order. Uh, they did engage in a lot of missionary work. They came to the United States in 1852 from Italy. Uh, before that, they were largely based in northern Italy, in Genoa, Piedmont. There was an attempt in the early 1800s to establish some Passionist missions in Bulgaria, which was part of the Ottoman Empire at the time. That didn't that wasn't terribly successful. But it, but beginning in the mid 19th century, they started expanding their missionary orders to all kinds of different places, to the United States. The first place in the United States they came to was Pittsburgh. And eventually they made their way to New York, to Boston, to Cincinnati, St. Louis. Uh, they also established a number of monasteries in Germany and Austria. Another prominent place was Jamaica. And then another place where they had a significant presence in the Hunan province was in China uh, until eighteen until 1950. excuse me. Uh, and so in terms of Fabian Flynn itself, um, A member of the Passionist Order, the Passionist Monastery in Boston at St. Gabriel's, Um, they visited Father Flynn's church at the time when he was a teenager uh, in Dorchester, uh, St. Peter's Church, and he gave a presentation if anyone was interested in the order, and Flynn, who was a senior at the Boston Latin School, was very interested in it, and that drove him to eventually join the order.
0: And so, in chapter one, you focus on Father Flynn's youth in um, the period between 1905 and 1924, um, and, and this period was, you know, uh, full of geopolitical transformations um, in, in Europe and, and the globe. Can you tell us a little bit about um, Father Flynn's early life um, and the world that he was born into?
1: Yeah, absolutely, um, Flynn. Interesting, the year he was born in 1905 was also the year in boston that elected its first irish catholic mayor daniel welton so that was seen as finally the year in which the catholics in boston had reached the uh top of political power in the city uh because boston until the uh, mid-19th century was one of the most protestant cities in america if not one of the most protestant cities in the world and uh but because of significant Irish immigration in the mid-19th century and then later followed by immigration from Italy, from Portugal, to a lesser extent from Poland, from, from Germany, uh, by the year of Flynn's birth, Catholics were about half the population of Boston. And uh, so he grows up in a Catholic milieu, but he was always kind of, was always kind of a, an exceptional uh, child and in kind of a different environment. Uh, He was a rare thing for a Boston Irish Catholic. He was an only child. He had an older sister, Elizabeth, who died before he he was born. His father ran a number of stores at Faneuil Hall, which is a popular shopping district in Boston. Uh, People from Boston will know what I'm talking about. His uh, mother worked as a maid, as a homemaker. Uh, Most of the Boston Irish, of course, supported the Democratic Party. Flynn's family were Republicans, which is something he kind of carried with him uh, throughout his life. Um, And interestingly, he, despite the fact that his family were regular churchgoers, and for most Irish Catholics in Boston, the church played a huge role, not just on Sunday, but in many parts of daily life, he didn't go to parochial schools. He went to the Boston Mather School for elementary school, the oldest elementary school in the world, and then the Boston Latin School for high school. Uh, and I think that was important because although he ha- had very strong Catholic beliefs, a lot of the environments he was in meant he was interacting with people of a lot of different religious backgrounds. Uh, so, for example, when he becomes a chaplain during um, uh, World War II, uh, for, some of the, for some of the Catholic chaplains, it was a challenge for them because it was the first time for a lot of them they were dealing with Protestants uh, for the first time. Uh, for Flynn, that, that wasn't that, that big of an issue. Uh, But in terms of the more broader environment, uh, America, by entering the Second, entering the First World War, has kind of solidified its rising power status that had begun with the the Spanish-American War in 1898. And then, of course, in Europe itself, uh, the First World War was a devastating wave that that left everything forever change. Uh, You have four dynasties fall. The, the Romanovs in Russia, the Hohenzollerns in Germany, the Habsburgs in Austria, and then the Ottoman Empire as well, the Ottomans as well. And uh, much of the rest of the 20th century is dealing with the legacy of what the war from 1914 to 1918 unleashed, and then something towards the end of that war, uh, the Russian Revolution, and, and uh, the, the emergence of the Communist Soviet Union, and then and I would argue somewhat as a response to that, the emergence of various right-wing authoritarian regimes in part of Europe, um, and ultimately fascism in Italy and, and national socialism in Germany. Uh, so it's a very tumultuous time period that uh, Flynn himself, in his from writings I could find as a teenager, didn't seem <laughs> too terribly aware of this, but a lot of what goes on in his youth, he's going to be dealing with the repercussions of which uh, when he's an adult.
0: And so after, um, you know, Flynn grows up in, in the Boston area and he joins the Passionists after uh, high school um, and then in, in chapter two, you focus on the period between 1924 and 1941. Um, and, and you really dive into um, the, the, the writings of uh, his, his work as an editor of um, The Sign, which is the, the Passionist magazine. Um, And and he was active in in, in publishing uh, pamphlets. And it is through these sort of different publications that we get a sense of Father Flynn's um, ideological leanings, right, and Mm -hmm. how he views the world. Um, Can you tell us about uh, Flynn's view of the world and and what we learned through these publications?
1: Well, I was always grateful when I was researching and writing this book that he wrote so much in the 30s because the seminary period from the mid uh, 20s to the early 30s was the toughest per- thing to write because there's not as much archival material I could use about him. But yeah, His writings in the 30s reveal quite a bit. I mean, this is during the Great Depression. Uh, this is when – and America doesn't face this quite as hard as Europe does. But there's a belief by some that the liberal democracy, that capitalism has failed. It's time for um, – more extreme solutions to these problems. Again, some people look towards Mussolini's regime for inspiration. Others look towards the Soviet Union. Uh, and Flynn uh, was always a man of the right, but in that uh, American Catholic milieu, uh, he, he avoids extremes. Like he writes in his catechism of communism for for uh, high school students, and then of course, just want to make sure to get the Catholicism, Americanism, and Communism for Adults, Um, he does offer a defense of the market economy, of democracy. Uh, He's very strongly anti-communist. But unlike someone like Father Coughlin, for example, he doesn't link uh, communism with Judaism, for example. In a number of his writings, he was always a strong opponent of of, um, anti-Semitism. And also a, a, a fairly early critique of racial discrimination as well, saying that the, these type of things only assisted extremist ideologies. But he felt that he, and he told both Catholic adults and teenagers this. You can't just say about communism that it's evil and it's, it's atheistic and that's bad and that's all you have to say. He said you have to – the church has to provide a good alternative of assisting the poor and, and helping them through times of need. And the church needs to, yes, obviously pray, but it needs to act, provide a better alternative to extremist ideologies. Um, and also, I mean, he, he was also not a fan of fascist regimes either. Uh, for the, a lot of the times it's it, critique of them initially is that they don't respect the independence of the church enough, but more broadly, he wasn't a fan of dictate dictatorial regimes in general. Um, and, but throughout his life, he, he had kind of a, um, a, c- a cynicism about um, about politicians and people in authority that they often made decisions, they made policies, and they didn't think of the consequences of them or the impact they would have on regular people or on refugees or on different groups. And it would be officials like him who kind of had to deal with the consequences of that. Um, but again, I would say he's a figure on the right of the American Catholic spectrum. And, and towards the end of his life, I know we'll get to this in a later question, but in the 1960s, uh, that kind of leaves him on the outs with some American public opinion and even some friends in the church.
0: And, and a really important part uh, of uh, the book and in Father Flynn's life is um, Father Flynn's uh, service in, in, in World War II. And the, the way I sort of uh, see it and conceptualize um, your treatment of that is that there are two um, parts to that one is is father Flynn's um, sort of uh, work as a chaplain for active duty troops um, in, in World War two um, but then a, a second part where he was uh, you know uh, he had a prominent role during the Nuremberg trials um, can you sort of tell us about those um, two parts of, of uh, his service
1: absolutely and I It seems like uh, that people who play a big role in certain events, sometimes pivotal historical figures, it's almost a miracle that they got to that point, or they almost got into it by accident. Because Flynn has a number – he had health problems all of his life. Uh, He developed uh, stomach cancer in the late 30s. They had – he had to have surgery that removed uh, somewhere between two and three-fifths of his stomach, and a lot of people thought he wouldn't survive – And then the order was like, well, let's just send him – he had to leave the Sign magazine, which is based in Union City, New Jersey. And he had to go – he was transferred to St. Gabriel's in Boston or in Brickton because uh, the order figured, well, he's from Boston. He's probably not going to live much longer, so he can die in Boston basically. Um, But then World War II breaks out, and almost – just a few weeks after Pearl Harbor, Flynn is petitioning the members of his order – you know, I want to enlist as a chaplain. I want to uh, serve soldiers in either Europe or the Pacific. And um, I feel like it's my duty and I want to go. And they keep saying, well, you know, you have all these health problems. Do you really think you can do it? And so he has to spend much of 1942 petitioning them. Well, they finally let him in. Right? And so they finally do in October of 1942. Uh, he goes to the chaplain school, which was at Harvard University. So at least you didn't have to go very far for that. Um, And then he spent a while at a military training uh, base uh, for medics in in Texas. Uh, So that was kind of a culture shock for him going there. Um, And then he ultimately gets sent to join the 26th Infantry Regiment, which is part of the uh, 1st Infantry Division, which was in North Africa in the summer of 1943. So he, 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 he joins them in Algeria. Uh, he, he missed the fighting in North Africa, but he is part of the invasion of Sicily, um, Operation uh, Husky, and uh, he's with them through that entire time in Sicily. He's almost killed when a grenade goes off near him uh, and gets some shrapnel, some of which almost blinded him uh, basically because of residual effects of that injury he lost sight in one of his eyes and um so he's with them uh with the first infantry division through sicily mm-hmm. and they were called the big red one a famous division in the united states army uh they were also nicknamed the bloody first because they were often first into combat so again one of their nicknames was the big dead one because they had so many casualties And so then after Sicily, they don't take part in Operation Avalanche, the invasion of southern Italy. They go back to England in late 43. They spend the spring of 44 in England training to be part of, of course, Operation Overlord, D-Day, the invasion of northwest France. And so the 1st Infantry Division is part of that. Uh, Flynn's uh, regiment, the 26th Infantry Division, the Blue Spaders, uh, don't get on the beaches until about midday. But they do arrive at Omaha Beach. The fighting is still going on. And he's just like in Sicily, he spent a lot of his time uh, conducting last rites for dying soldiers, sometimes not only assisting at the funerals but helping dig their graves, and then holding, uh, having confessions, uh, arranging for the spiritual counseling for a lot of soldiers because there were never enough Protestant, Jewish, and Catholic chaplains to go around. So just because he was a Catholic priest didn't mean that he wouldn't he wouldn't take confession necessarily. But, you know, he would often provide spiritual advising and pray with uh, Protestant and Jewish soldiers as well. It's just something that you had to do. Um, And then also it was finding various places to hold mass. And he talked about how he went from everywhere from abandoned cow fields to an abandoned casino, to abandoned estates. Um, Like a lot of chaplains, he had his own Jeep. He would use the hood of the jeep as the altar. Uh, So anyway, he's uh, with them through Normandy. Uh, He's with them through some of the battles in France and in Belgium. And then he uh, develops a – he misses the Battle of the Bulge in the winter of 44-45 because he develops a case of malaria. He has to go back to the United States, to Massachusetts to recover in the hospital for a few months. And he doesn't get to rejoin the 26th Infantry Regiment. Until the summer of 1945, when the war is as early, late spring, early summer, when the war is basically ended, and then the 26th Infantry Regiment was assigned to Nuremberg. Uh, that was the specific city that they were assigned uh, towards, and so that's how Flynn ends up with the Nuremberg, involved in the Nuremberg trials, uh, because uh, it's decided eventually to ha- that the International Military Tribunal will hold the trials in Nuremberg. I mean there was no plan to originally I mean it always gets associated with the Nuremberg trials, but the, there was no long-term plan to host it there. The original plan was to host it to have it in Berlin. There was some talk about having it in Luxembourg. Uh, but ultimately it was decided to be held in Nuremberg uh, for partially for symbolic reasons because the city was in Bavaria. Bavaria was one of the, one of Austria was one of the birthplaces of national socialism. A lot of prominent members of the Nazi party were from uh, either from Bavaria or from Austria. Hitler was Austrian. And so Nuremberg was famous for all the massive rallies uh, the Nazi party would put together in the 1930s and in, in the early forties before the war intervenes. Um, so the idea was to, to have it there would be kind of a symbolic justice. Also, Nuremberg had a large courtroom facility with a prison nearby that had not been damaged by bombings. And so that made it uh, use a practical idea as well. Um, the Soviets kind of hold out for a while. They want to have the trial in Berlin. Uh, but because the British, the Americans and the French, particularly the British and Americans, have a lot more high-ranking Nazi war criminals in custody than the Soviets do, the Soviets agree. Um Ironically, Flynn himself, when he was writing because obviously he's not editing time, but he's still contributing articles for them. Uh, he pointed out that uh, Nuremberg, uh, OK, maybe it has good symbolic reasons in the courtroom still there, but pretty much every other building was destroyed. Uh, it's funny. I mean, I go to Germany every so often and it's so prosperous now and everything. It's hard to imagine a time still technically in living memory where large parts of the country, there was hardly a building standing and most of the roads were destroyed. And in Nuremberg, like most German cities, it was a humanitarian disaster. You have all of these people taken from all over Europe, by the Nazis, as slave laborers, trying to get home. Uh, you have uh, people who've been liberated from the concentration camps, but in some cases, since there's no place for them, they still have to stay in the camps. And then as soon as they get certain people out, of the refugee camps, uh, new people come in because all these ethnic Germans from now what is Poland and Czechoslovakia are being expelled by the authorities there. So it's just an absolute mess every single day, and and with most of the average German population just barely trying to survive, and basically the American authorities, as, as Flynn acknowledged, barely keeping order. So anyway, the 26th Infantry Regiment gets assigned to be the guards at the tribunal. And Flynn is made the official chaplain of the tribunal. And then he's one of two Catholic chaplains there. He's one. And then eventually, because he eventually leaves the army in early 46 and joins Catholic Relief Services. I know we'll get to that in a later question. He's replaced with Father Sixtus O'Connor. The Lutheran chaplain was a man named Ralph Agarici. And so since Germany is still a majority Protestant country, and not like a lot of these senior Nazis were very observant anyway, but but, um, Gereke dealt with more of the German defendants than Flynn did, because frankly, more of them were of Lutheran background. But among the people that Flynn served as a confessor to uh, was uh, at least three defendants that we're aware of, two of which um, mentioned him in their own memoirs. Uh, Franz von Papen, who played a pretty big role in 1933 and bringing Hitler to power he was the vice chancellor uh in the dying throes of the weimar republic and he persuaded hindenburg to make hitler uh chancellor and uh he helped negotiate the concordat between hitler's government and the pope uh Pius XI at the time which was a big foreign policy victory for hitler early on in power ironically the concordat is more or less still in effect today in germany <laughs> um and then Hitler eventually made him ambassador of the Holy See and then ambassador to Turkey. Uh, and then an, another man named Baldur von Schirach, who was, um, the Gaulleitner for, uh, Vienna for a while after Austria's birth of Germany, in 1938. And then for a long time, he was the head of the Hitler youth. Uh, and then finally a man named Hans Frank, who was, um, who had been, in the Weimar period, Hitler's personal lawyer, and Hitler during World War II him the governor of Poland. So Flynn met with these people, heard their confessions, uh, met with them on a number of different occasions. For a lot of the defendants, the only people they got to meet with were their lawyers or their, or the guards or the uh, chaplains. Um, and then Frank was sentenced to death, and I would argue deservedly so. Von Papen was one of the two people acquitted, and Shirak got 20 years uh, in, in, in Spandau prison in West Berlin. But Shirak and, and Poppen praised Flynn for um, uh, not only assisting them, but also looking after their families. Uh, they both mentioned them in their memoirs. Because another thing, before we move on, uh, Flynn was also put in charge of organizing a witness house outside of Nuremberg, where a lot of the witnesses for Prosecution lived in, but also typical army bureaucracy at the time. It was also a house where a lot of the family members, of some of the defendants, were living in. So Flynn was in charge of finding this house. He finds this Hungarian countess, to kind of who had fled when the Red Army entered Hungary, to to run the house and kind of supervise that from '45 to '46. So he had a lot of different duties.
0: And so after uh, Flynn's involvement with uh, the trials. Um, he, he used to work with or uh, for Catholic Relief Services in Germany and Hungary. Um, what is Catholic Relief Services, and sure. uh, what was Flynn's role?
1: Okay, so Catholic Relief Services was founded as War Relief Services in 1943. It was founded by the National Catholic Welfare Conference, operating on the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Its origins kind of go back to World War One. They had the National Catholic War Council. So it was founded in 1943 uh, for the American Catholic Church to provide humanitarian relief for the victims of the Second World War. So the man put in charge of it was a man named Father Edward Swanstrom. He was a director of orally services and Catholicly services from the mid-40s to the mid-1970s, right? And he oversaw its overall operations. But, uh, he was famous in the 30s and 40s for – Working, um, Being a priest who worked with dock workers in New York City, uh, helped to kind of expose the corruption there of organized crime. So any film buffs listening, if you're fans of the film On the Waterfront, Carl Malden's character, the priest there, is largely inspired by Swanstrom. So he helped set it up. He meets uh, Flynn in Italy, uh, because Flynn took a number of trips to Rome. They they meet with the Pope. They're trying to arrange for Italian prisoners of war to be repatriated back to Italy. And his record uh, during World War II, during the Nuremberg trials, deeply impressed um, Swanstrom. And so Swanstrom asked Flynn if he'd be interested in, once he left the army, working for um, war relief services. And I'll just switch to Catholic Relief Services. It doesn't get that name until the, <laughs> until the 50s. But um, And Flynn kind of does this on his own, and he hadn't really cleared it with his order. And that's kind of another drama I get to in the book. The Passionist Order is like, you've been doing stuff on your own for four years. It's time to come back and rejoin the community. that what Passionists are supposed to do. And um, basically, the officials in Catholic Relief Services keep telling Flynn's order, we can't spare this man. He's too valuable. Right. And so the order finally in the early 50s, after they finally get Flynn back for a year, he's put back to sign magazine from 50 to 51. CRS asked for him again and they send Flynn back to them. And after that, they kind of give up on it. But they really made his life difficult afterwards. I, I like to joke that um, the, Flynn was a passion as to maybe should have been a Jesuit because he would have had more <laughs> leeway to have more dependents. Um, The funny thing is, Flynn himself sometimes had a low opinion of the Jesuit order. He sometimes referred to them in his correspondence as those rogues and those renegades. Um, But anyway, Catholic Relief Services uh, worked with government authorities and with other relief agencies to distribute food and medicine uh, and uh, clothing to people who were fleeing the effects of the war. Right. And also they helped administer a number of refugee camps, which, of course, in Germany and, and Austria were, were full of them and would remain full of them until, frankly, the mid to late uh, 1950s. I mean, that, that's, I, I like to joke sometimes that's an issue with historical writing and our understanding of the 20th century, that history ends in 1945, or that <laughs> what a lot of people are interested in. And, you know, the story goes on after that. And there's all these um, after effects of World War II that countries still have to deal with. So Flynn is first assigned to the French zone of Germany, French zone of Germany. Uh, he's in the city of uh, Freiburg. So he's there for eh, from 46 to 1948. Uh, and then he gets assigned to Hungary in 1948. And I know we'll talk more about Hungary later. He's only there for a few months, though, because unfortunately for that country, Hungarian communists were seizing power, and they were basically building a state modeled on the Soviet Union. So most of his staff in Hungary were arrested, and he was arrested too and expelled to Austria. The technical charge was that he had abused his work visa (laughs) by leaving Hungary too much. Um, He does come back in 56, though. So then he spends uh, from late 48 to early 49 in the American zone of Germany, He's in Munich. And then in 49, he is transferred to Austria. And he will be in Austria for the next 14 years, uh, from 49 to 63. And he spends much of his time in Austria working with refugees. Uh, and I, for the most part, for the first six or seven years, uh, most of the refugees he's working with are what were called the Volksdeutsche, the ethnic Germans, the um, expelled from Poland and Czechoslovakia and to a lesser extent from Hungary and parts of the Soviet Union and who end up either in East Germany, West Germany or in Austria. And um, they start to get joined by people uh, fleeing political persecution in communist countries like, um, like Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Hungary, and but still the majority of the ethnic Germans. And then um, after 56, of course, everything changes because you get – would gotten actually most of the ethnic Germans out of the camps. Uh, Some of them had gone to different countries uh, abroad. Others have been integrated into West Germany or Austria. Um, And it looks like by the mid-50s, Flynn's task is almost done, and Catholic Relief Services can start winding down. Its operations in Austria, the Austrian Catholic Church and its charitable arm, Caritas, can take over. And then you have the events of 1956, and that more or less forces Flynn to stay in Austria for another half a decade. Um, But it was a huge relief on the Austrian government because they were having – Austria experienced a lot of damages during the Second World War. Uh, And so private relief agencies uh, played a huge role in assisting refugees in Austria – Because of that country's proximity to the Iron Curtain, uh, and it was often amongst the first country to receive ethnic or political uh, refugees.
0: So, as you mentioned, you know, sorry, as you mentioned, um, uh, as you mentioned, you you know, the way that uh, history is often uh, periodized or conceptualized is. 1945, right, serves as a convenient uh, ending point for many periodizations, but you see sort of a continuation after that. And one of those sort of continuations is um, the Hungarian Revolution. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, historical, the sort of geopolitical and historical context of the Hungarian Revolution and Father Flynn's uh, work in Hungary and engaging that context? Sure, of course. Uh, Well, Hungary uh, was one
1: of those countries during the interwar period, uh, that was an authoritarian regime, um, after the Habsburg empire collapses in 1918, um, for a while, um, the last Habsburg king of Hungary, Karl wanted to stick around as king in Budapest, uh, even after he left Vienna, the allies wouldn't let him. So the Hungarian first Republic is declared, uh, in late 1918, and then that falls in early 1919, the Hungarian Communist Party sets up a Soviet Republic in Hungary, uh, headed by uh, a Hungarian, leader of the Hungarian Communist, Bela Kuhn. And it's only in power for a few months, uh, but they try and build like a Soviet-style regime in Hungary. They invade Romania, try and uh, extend the revolution there. It's a disaster. The Romanian army defeats them, invades Hungary opposes the communists, Belakun flees to Moscow. And um, what you have is kind of an authoritarian government uh, under Admiral Miklos Horthy, who was the former grand admiral of the uh, Habsburg Navy. um, And technically, the state was still called the Kingdom of Hungary, with Horthy serving as the regent. Um, But because they couldn't figure out who to offer the crown to and the allies wouldn't let the Habsburgs come back, One of the jokes was was that Hungary was a kingdom without a king led by an admiral despite the fact the country had no coastline. (laughs) So um, Hungary during the Second World War uh, joined somewhat reluctantly into an alliance with uh, Germany. Uh, Hungarian soldiers take part in the invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, And then eventually Horty realizes in 1944 – that the war is is lost for, for the Axis powers. He tries to negotiate a separate peace with the British and the Americans, and they more or less say, no, you need to negotiate one with the Soviets too, which Horthy was desperate to try and avoid, right? He didn't want Soviet domination of the country. But he decides to open up communications with the Soviet government in 44. Hitler <clears> hears <throat> of this. Horthy is overthrown and a direct Hungarian fascist regime led by Ferenc Zelazi, the head of the Arrow Cross Party. That was the Hungarian fascist. Uh, they come to power. And they're only in power for less than a year. But it's a devastating time for Hungary, particularly for Hungary's Jewish population. Horthy's regime was somewhat anti-Semitic, but it had not deported its Jewish population. And Zalassi was eager to do so. So if you look at the, the deaths in the Holocaust, the last year of the war, a huge number of them are Hungarian Jews. Anyway, uh, the Red Army takes Budapest um, on their way to Berlin uh, in February of 1945. Uh, Zalazi, of course, is deposed. He's tried. He's executed. You have a period in Hungary for a few years of multi party democracy. It's this period some historians like to call uh, from roughly 45 to about 47, 48 after Hitler, but before Stalin. Um, but by late 1947, You know the elections in Hungary don't go too well for the communists. The Hungarian Communist Party, and and this happens in a lot of countries, East Germany, Poland, they force the Socialist Party to join with them and to form the Hungarian Workers Party. It's what we call salami tactics. The idea is first you go after the fascists, then you go after the monarchists, then you go after the liberal middle class parties, then you go after the peasant party, and then finally you go after the socialist. Right, and once you've you've defeat them all one by one until there's no one left. And so this is a process largely completed by late 1947. And uh, basically by late 1947, most of the other political parties have been banned. It's a one party dictatorship under the general secretary of the Hungarian Workers' Party, Matthias Rakoshe, uh, who was nicknamed quite accurately as Hungary Stalin. And uh, he immediately begins kind of a crash course of building Hungary along Soviet lines, following Stalin's example. And that includes the persecution of religion, both the majority Catholic church and the minority Calvinist uh, churches in Hungary. And pretty much once all the other parties are banned, the most prominent opponent of Rakoshe in Hungary was Cardinal Menzente, the Cardinal Joseph Menzente, the head of the Hungarian Catholic Church. And so Menzente is arrested in early 1948. And he's put on trial and he's subjected to these brainwashing experiments, which mainly involved just physical torture, <laughs> until he confessed to all these kind of outlandish crimes. Like he wanted to bring the Habsburgs back, but he wanted to initiate World War III with, uh, with assisting the Americans with the idea of the Americans would put him in charge of Hungary after the war is over. And um, it was a huge trial, uh, got a lot of public attention uh, all over Europe. Uh, Pius XII, the pope, excommunicated all the Hungarians involved in the trial. I mean, although Menzente wasn't sentenced to death, he was sentenced to life imprisonment, like a famous martyr of the regime. So along with, I'd say, Albania and Romania, the communist regime in Hungary was one of the most repressive of all the satellite states. And after Stalin dies in 53, for Rokoshi, it's like, well, really, nothing's changed. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing. For a number of the other satellite states, like Poland, for example, and even Czechoslovakia, they relent a little bit on the purges, on the trials, on, on the huge demands of the workers to make more of the factories. Hungary doesn't do that at all. Okay, so in early '56, um, Khrushchev gives this famous speech in Moscow denouncing Stalin. He was told by other Soviet leaders, don't do that because of what happened, what might happen in Eastern Europe. Stalin built communism in Eastern Europe. The communists haven't been in power that long. It could have a destabilizing factor. Of course, Khrushchev, which was his habit, ignores him, does it anyway. And in Hungary, it leads to a big struggle in the Hungarian Workers' Party between those who say, OK, we should reform like Khrushchev wants. Uh, and this was centered around a, a man named Emre Neige. And then Rakosi's faction, it's like, uh, no, 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 we're still following Stalin's example. And this drags on for months. And eventually, Khrushchev, who found Rocochet too difficult to deal with, he forces him to resign, sends him to Moscow, but he replaces him with his deputy, Erno euro who is just as much of a Stalinist. So euro and Nagy are in kind of this power struggle. And then in neighboring Poland, which has also been having all these problems in 56, in October of 56, in Poland, you have all these riots and demonstrations, and it brings a Polish communist named Wladyslaw Gomolka to power. And the belief was he had stood up to Moscow. He advocated a Polish road to independent path to socialism, didn't follow the Soviet model. So the Hungarians thought if Poland can win its freedom, so can we. But since the Hungarian communist regime was so much more oppressive, the events in Hungary go in a much more radical direction. You have street, eventually in late October, early November, you have street fighting in Budapest, and a number of other Hungarian cities uh, as thousands of workers and university students and, and some members of the Hungarian army affect the revolution. They target the Hungarian secret police, the AVEHA, for, uh, for assassination. And NAGE announces in early November as a way of kind of holding on to power that Hungary will become a multi-party democracy again and it will leave the Warsaw Pact. That was the Soviet equivalent to NATO. And for Moscow, for Khrushchev, it's like, okay, they can't do that. That's enough. And because of the fact that the Suez crisis is going on at the same time, the world's attention is a little distracted. The Soviets launched a massive invasion of Hungary. And they um, crushed the Hungarian Revolution. Uh, they put a new puppet government in place under Asia's deputy, Janos Kitar. About 25,000 Hungarians are killed. About 5,000 Russian soldiers are killed. And then about two hundred thousand Hungarians flee the country because the they, the Hungarian government can't close off the border temporarily. Most of them end up in Austria. Most of them end up in Austria. And many of the Hungarians were kind of embittered because they thought the United States, in particular, would come to their aid if they rose up. They thought that you know Radio Free Europe and and Eisenhower's talk about rolling back communism you know, had had. Uh, encourage them to do so and the Austrian government which had become like a neutral country in 1955 is totally unprepared for this they initially put the Hungarians on trains and just kind of circle the country and Flynn has to and, and again it wasn't just Catholic relief services there are other charitable groups as well but Flynn has to spend the better part of 56 until the early 60s trying to keep these people in as good of conditions as they were in the camps and trying to find new homes for them and, a lot, and eventually they do. I mean, some, some do, do go back to Hungary when Kadar gives an amnesty the next year, but most um, end up going all over the world. And uh, the Austrian government, when it's all over, gives Flynn for the second time the Golden Cross Award, which is the highest honor that any um, non-Austrian can receive. And so finally, it's not until 63 that the situation calms down enough that Flynn can finally go back home.
0: So, after, so he goes back home yeah. after this time in uh, Europe in different contexts. Can you tell us a little about uh, Flynn's uh, final years when he comes back to the United States? Sure. Well, he does have to live in a Passionist
1: community again <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in, in, in uh, the Bronx, but he's still working for Catholic Relief Services. Okay. And he spends the next six years working for public relations. He's the chief PR spokesman for Catholic Relief Services, which is kind of, you know, PR is kind of a thankless job now, is a thankless job then. And so he spends about six years doing that, Um, some of which he was, some of the work there he was quite happy with, others led to um, some difficulty for him. Um, Before I get into that, again, he keeps popping up everywhere. He was also assigned as one of the American experts during the Second Vatican Council. He was at the first, second, and third sessions as a, um, which is roughly an expert. Uh, the, the records of the second Vatican council, it's not like he shows up a lot making contributions. He was definitely there might not have been there for the the fourth session. Um, and again, Rome was a city he was uh, fairly familiar with. So he writes a lot of articles and pamphlets telling Catholics, this is where your money goes for Catholic relief services. We're not just handing money out. We're assisting people when they need it, that type of thing. Um, but then, again, Flint can't get away from the big issues of the day. Uh, a country that had become one of the largest single recipients of aid from Catholic Relief Services was South Vietnam, R- Republic of Vietnam. And um, because of the conditions in that country by the mid-1960s, the agents of Catholic Relief Services – were very dependent on either the American military or the South Vietnamese military to distribute aid, right, um, to various parts of the country. Because parts of the country, you know, were occupied by Viet Cong insurgents, some were occupied by bandits, and, and of course the Vietnam War is a very um, controversial issue in the United States at the time, and even in the Catholic Church. And there was a movement in the Catholic Church, kind of the Catholic New Left, if you will, that very, was very critical of Catholic Relief Services for providing aid to South Vietnam uh, for a couple reasons. They said, one, you're too dependent upon the State Department and the U.S. military. And, I mean, technically that first part was true for a long time. A lot of the aid – Catholic just the Catholic Relief oh. Services worked very closely at the U.S. State Department. Like a lot of the aid CRS distributed was provided for them by the State Department. The idea was you guys can just distribute it better than we can. Um, and why aren't you aiding North Vietnam too? Isn't this a violation of of, uh, Christian teachings? And Flynn had absolutely no patience for all of them. And he wrote a number of angry editorials denouncing them. He would say, we worked in North Vietnam until the communists expelled us in 54. And for him, it was kind of personal. You know, he has seen uh, communists come to power in Hungary before he was expelled. He didn't want that to happen again uh, in, in South Vietnam. And he argued that this country is fighting for its life against tyranny. And of course, as Christians, we have obligations to do so, particularly against an atheistic. tyranny. And so, um, his struggles during that period, having to what he believed justify work that didn't need any justification, uh, caused him a lot of, um, psychological turmoil. And for people like him and Swanstrom, you see this generational divide. They're all from the, you know, the Greatest Generation. Uh, a lot of them were army veterans, and the idea was, we America won World War II, we're the good guys, and there's no problem that can't be solved if we draw up a plan, we put enough resources to it. So I, I, it's fair to say that I think for him and for their ideological opponents in the Catholic Church. They're kind of talking over each other by this time. So he uh, leaves that in 1969. And then he spends a few years working as the deputy director for Catholic Relief Services in Italy. And um, but by 72, his various health problems finally catch up with him. And he's terminally ill with pancreatic cancer. Uh, So he finally returns to um, monastic life (laughs) after more or less 30 years. Um, but he doesn't have much longer and he dies, uh, in early 1973. And, uh, I talked to some of his relatives and they, they said that when, uh, he was in the hospital, when he was, before he got too sick to see anyone, and then the only person who saw him was Swanstrom, uh, both there, but also at the funeral. I remember one of them described it. It was like the ending of It's a Wonderful Life. When you had all the military veterans from World War II, representatives in the Austrian government and representatives from German and Hungarian immigrant organizations who all wanted to come and pay their respects to this man who did so much for them. So,
0: And so I'm interested in this, um, you know, this idea of like focusing on on, on one uh, man, one priest that did a lot. Um, you know, the book's title, The Priest Who Put Europe Back Together, it makes a bold claim, right, about the role <laughs> of Father Flynn in, in post-World War II Europe um, and, and even during World War II. Um, and, and there are many different, um, he was engaged in many different contexts, you know, related, but also with their local um, specifics. And, you know, there are many ways that you can approach, uh, so you can do a sort of an institutional history, military history, um, you know, uh, social history. What do you think we gain when we uh, sort of turn to biography and look at sort of big events through the life of one person, as you did in this book?
1: Well, I mean, when I do my historian's craft class when we get to history as biography, I argue that there's a section of the historical perfection that kind of looks down on biographies that it's it's, you know, it's too popular of a form of history or that it it supports kind of the great man theory of history, right? But I've always believed that individuals make history. It's individual choices made by thousands and millions of people that drive history forward. And yes, in decisions made by people in, in power uh, do help shape historical events. But I wanted to look at Flynn because this is someone who wasn't at the highest levels of power. It was kind of at the mid-level. And it was people like him uh, who are given tasks to be carried out to make the plans designed by those... Uh, above them a reality whether it's um, you know Eisenhower can make the order to launch D-Day but it's people like Flynn to accompany the soldiers to try and improve their spiritual morale after making a fact right Um, and again going back to Eisenhower he can choose probably not to start World War III by invading Hungary and assisting the revolutionaries against the Soviets but that's going to create a huge humanitarian crisis that, again, people like Flynn have to deal with, right? I mean, again, Eisenhower had said, we'll find these people a home, we'll do what we can for them, but it was people like Flynn who had to make it a reality. So sometimes I think you can learn a lot about events that, let's be honest, haven't extensively studied, like the landings of D-Day, like the Nuremberg trials, like the Hungarian Revolution, by looking at the impact they had on different individuals and look at them kind of from a new light. And so, I mean, obviously... the book's title is is symbolic in a way that there's Flynn and tens of thousands of others who put Europe back together. But Flynn and people like him played a vital part in that, and um, and often the contributions of people like that tend to get uh, tend to get neglected. And I was trying to avoid a hagiography. I mean, he was a very courageous man, and and he definitely lived his faith. He could be very stubborn and sometimes self-righteous, and and in terms of dealing with other people in Catholic Relief Services, if he had the perspective this was the right course to take, it was really hard to dissuade him him from it. Um, And so ironically, some of those characteristics that made him difficult to deal with were the things that helped him deal with certain tasks that were extraordinarily difficult.
0: Thank you so much for uh, talking to us about your uh, book, Um, One final question. Are are there any projects that you are currently working on um, right now that are coming down the pipeline that you want to tell us a little bit about?
1: Uh, Sure. Um, I actually have two works under contract. Um, The first is uh, for Catholic Education Press. Uh, That's an imprint of Catholic University of America Press, which published the Flynn book. Uh, It's called the KGB versus the Vatican, uh, the Revelations, of the Metrocan Archive. Uh, It's about a man named Vasily Matrokin. He was an archivist for the Soviet secret police, the KGB. Um, After the Soviet Union collapsed, he had been secretly for 20 years taking secret police documents home, transcribing them, and then bringing them back. Because, again, he was an archivist. He could do that. Uh, He offered his archive to the Americans first. They thought it was fake, so he offered it to the British. And so they got him and his family out of Russia into the United Kingdom. And his archive is available a lot of it's still in russian there's been a number of works published on it but um what i did was i took the stuff about the vatican about the soviet policies towards the vatican and towards the catholic churches the catholic church in the soviet union both the roman catholic church in lithuania and the underground greek catholic church in ukraine and it it was only a it was only a few, about 30 pages worth of material, but I translated it from Russian into English and then wrote kind of a historical introduction to it and then just wrote some historical end notes about some documents and certain things. So that's kind of a primary source collection, but it's been done for a while, so I'm, I'm really excited about it uh, finally coming out. Um, there's, some, there's some interesting stuff in here. No earth-shattering revelations, but uh, some fascinating stuff. And then uh, just a few days ago, I signed a contract with Lexington Books to publish um, a book I I finished. Um, It's a history of the Cold War at the United Nations from 47 to 60, looking at the two American ambassadors there, Warren Austin and uh, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. So they're kind of like the focal points of it. Uh, So I like to joke this is something, I mean, I'm a Europeanist historian by training, but lately, I've been writing about Americans like Flynn, like Austin, like Lodge, who are deeply involved in European and global affairs. And again, I didn't plan it this way, but they were all new. They were all old fashioned New England Republicans, too. <laughs> so I guess that's just the, the trend I've been on lately. But yeah, those are um, those are two projects I uh, that will hopefully both be out late next year.
0: Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Brennan, for talking to us about your book, The Priest Who Put Europe Back Together, The Life of Father Fabian Flynn, uh, published by Catholic University of America Press.